Hello, and welcome to a new season of Relatively Prime. That's right, we're back. There is now more stories from the mathematical domain for you to listen to. And I am so excited. I've been trying to bring this show back for a while, and to actually be here recording this for you just means so much to me. Oh, I guess I should introduce myself. My name is Samuel Hansen. I am the host and producer of Relatively Prime. And third season, third season, y'all. It's it's wonderful. Uh, there's going to be a, a few changes this time around. Uh, first of all, it's a bit of a structural thing. Instead of hour-long episodes featuring multiple stories uh, about a single topic, now episodes are just going to be single stories each time. But that's because I'm going to be bringing you Relatively Prime every single month from now on, which is great. So there's going to be more stories overall. It's just that each episode is going to be a little bit shorter, but that's going to make it a lot easier for me to maintain an episode a month pace. Uh, and think about it. No more huge breaks in between seasons. I really think that this is going to be for the best. Uh, and in order to keep doing this, though, I am going to need a little bit of help from you. Specifically, I'm going to need a little bit of financial support. And in order to do this, I've set up a Patreon page for Relatively Prime. You can find it at patreon.com slash relprime. That's R-E-L-P-R-I-M-E. And at the Patreon page, you can pledge to support Relatively Prime by giving just a little bit you can pledge to support Relatively Prime by giving just a little bit each time a new episode comes out. And if you do that, I'll be able to focus even more of my time and put in even more of my effort because I won't have to, you know, be working a ton of extra jobs in order to afford to make this podcast. And if you do, you'll also know that you are a part of making this show and helping the stories of mathematics get into the world. And trust me, that's a great feeling. I know because I get that feeling every time I'm re out there reporting an episode, every time I'm recording the narration and every time I hit publish and send a podcast out there. So you can be a part of that. All you have to do is go to Patreon and search Relatively Prime or go to patreon.com slash relprime. I think that's all of my announcement. Yeah, so let's get into the new season. Everyone get super excited. It's time for, oh, no, no, that is actually, that's not all of my new all of my announcements. There's one other very important thing. There's going to be a live episode of Relatively Prime at the Joint Mathematics Meetings in Atlanta. That's right. You can be in the room and listen to a live recording of Relatively Prime. You can do that by going to the Regency Ballroom number seven at the Hyatt Regency in Atlanta on Friday, January 6th at 8 p.m. So if you happen to live in Atlanta or if you're going to the joint mathematics meetings, make sure to come to the show. It's going to be an absolutely great time. Got some wonderful guests and there's a great topic that we will be talking about. Oh, and also I'm hosting a couple panels about communicating mathematics at the joint meetings. If you happen to be attending, uh, those are on Saturday morning. So please come to those too. They are really going to be a fun time. Uh, oh, and yeah, that's it. So new season, new season. Everyone get excited. There is a new season of Relatively Prime. More stories from the mathematical domain. Starting now.
This is Relatively Prime, lotteries in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. Okay, it's been too long. Let's not beat around the bush. Let's just get right into the story for this episode, starting with my guest. Okay. Uh, first name, Sharif, S-H-A-R-I-F. Ibrahim, I-B-R-A-H-I-M. Today we'll be talking about work that Sharif did as a graduate student at Washington State University. He's since graduated, but... I am working somewhere else now, but I'm not necessarily wanting to tie them to this project. Okay. No, so, not, not that I can possibly understand why he wants to give his new employers any sort of distance, given what we're talking about. And uh, so we are here to talk about uh, the... Is it is it officially cannabis or marijuana uh, licenses? Um, so the, the, the state uses both, but I think they... they in the legislation, prefer cannabis. Uh, in fact, the, the state agency is now named the Liquor and Cannabis Board. Okay, okay, so I guess I can understand. Sharif was the person who was in charge of designing the lottery that was used to distribute licenses for the retail sale of cannabis in Washington state after they passed Washington Initiative 502 in November 2012. This legalized the sale and use of small amounts of marijuana for people over the age of 21 in the state. The initiative was passed on the same day as a similar one in Colorado. But there was a key difference between the two states. In the case of Colorado, they went straight, at least as a stopgap measure, to having the medical dispensaries dispense to recreational users. But Washington didn't have that luxury. And the, the initiative enacted, imposed pretty strict timelines on them in order to get this up and running quickly. So it was kind of scrambling at the beginning there. Considering that the initiative only gave them a year and a half to take something which had been illegal for a long time and make it not only legal, but licensed and regulated, scrambling seems like a totally reasonable course of action to me. And while the state, and in particular the Liquor Control Board, they hadn't added the cannabis yet, was scrambling, everyone else was doing what they want to do, wondering exactly what the government was going to do. Everyone was speculating this time because, again, no one had ever done this. People were wondering, okay, well, how are you going to decide who can sell? What sort of limits will there be? Will there be a pot shop on every corner? What will this future look like? Well, and I'm sure this comes as no surprise. They didn't end up going with that pot shop on every corner idea. Much to the chagrin of your Uncle Shaggy, who had really been looking forward to when Fish's next tour hit the Pacific Northwest. Poor Uncle Shaggy. He's never going to visit Washington now. But, but back to the actual story. Washington instead decided to create a three-tier system with producers, processors, and retailers. And while I'm sure that there's interesting stories about the former two, we're going to focus on how they decided to distribute the retail licenses. They decided they would have a certain number of uh, licenses allocated throughout the state. And those were further broken down by population. So, for example, uh, Seattle, being very populous, gets 21 of the 334 available licenses. And those are distributed to people who apply within the city limits of Seattle. The only problem with that is 
it turns out uh, 191 people want to apply for those 21 licenses. So now, what do you do? Eh, it really didn't seem that hard to me. What do you do? Do you just like put a hat in the middle of the table, just like draw some names out? I mean, cause that, that sounds pretty logical, right? It, it does. And, and you know, that, that does. if you've already had some of the, some of the now legal cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just pass the hat around, whatever. Um, as, as fun as that sounds, though, Sharif raised some rather reasonable points as to why it probably wasn't my best idea ever. In terms of just putting the names in the hat, pulling them out, now, okay, let's say we do that. How can we ensure that that's random? Because this is, this is a new industry, and people are very concerned that we get it right the first time. And if you go with some sort of procedure that not everyone accepts as fair, then this process is going to be bogged down with the appeals of just how do we do this? So if we can get it right, then we should. That's a pretty good rule to have in life in general, I find. That it is. And it's a rule that sadly not everyone has taken to heart when designing lottery procedures in the past. Take, for example, the 1970 USA Draft Lottery. In other words, the lottery to determine which young American men would be sent to Vietnam. This lottery was a huge deal. It was broadcast live on CBS and consisted of drawing balls numbered 1 through 366 out of a large glass jar. The Director of Selective Service is going to establish tonight a random selection uh, sequence for induction for 1970. I will ask Congressman Perney to come forward. Congressman Perney is representing the United States of uh, the Military Affairs Committee of the House, and he also is a senior uh, Republican president who has been of the watchdog committee of this selective service system. And we're going to ask him to choose the first. September 14th. September 14, zero, zero, one. The problem was, these balls had not been mixed thoroughly enough. And therefore, the order in which they got pulled out wasn't random. Specifically, you were much more likely to have a low draft number, and a much higher probability of being called up, if your birthday happened to fall in the final months of the calendar year. Not that anyone had planned for it to go this way. They were just sloppy in how things came together. And because of that, the draft lottery was not fair. And I can't begin to imagine how those young people felt going to war due to people not mixing up some balls in a jar enough. We are, of course, talking about something much less serious. I in no way wish to draw an equivalence between draft numbers and retail cannabis licenses. But this is a perfect example of why you need more than just good intentions when creating a lottery. And why Sharif says... The, the, the main function of a lottery is making sure that people trust it. And it can go beyond just bad randomization techniques too. There's also subversion. Someone who tinkers with a lottery for their own or a partner's benefit. And I'm not just talking about folding the corner of a 50-50 raffle ticket so the person drawing it out can find it in the jar. It can get a lot more cinematic than that. 
there is a room in Des Moines that is locked. Glass walled, video monitored, and only accessible by two people at a time. In that room is a computer. And on that computer is a program which has the ability to change a person's life overnight. That's the program which chooses the hot lotto numbers. Eddie Tipton was a man of certain skills. Those skills led him to be employed in that building in Des Moines and also led him to be allowed into that room on November 20th, 2010. One month and nine days later, a winning ticket for Hot Lotto was purchased, some say by Eddie Tipton. Did Eddie use his skills for ill? Or was this a case of mistaken identity? Find out this winter. When you go to see Eddie Tipton and the case of the selectively random number generator. And just in case you were planning on going to the cinemas to catch that one, I must warn you this next part is a huge, huge spoiler. Okay, just us who want to be spoiled on the story now? Good. So, according to the courts, Eddie did use his skills to subvert the hot lotto random number generator, and he's currently serving 10 years in prison for doing so. He's now also been charged with tampering with at least three other lotto drawings along with his brother Tommy. The forensic evidence seems to indicate that each of these drawings were influenced by a dynamic link library which had been put on the computers. This library caused drawings to become predictable if those drawings just so happened to occur on certain days of the year, which also happened to fall on specific days of the week, and the drawing itself occurred after a certain time in the day. But that's enough of that. Let's get back to our Washington State Cannabis Lottery. So the, the Liquor Control Board, they, they want to run this lottery. Now, they understand that if they run it themselves, well, first of all, that's, that's not their core competency. They, they don't run lotteries for a living. And number two, if they run the lottery, they also know exactly who applied for every license. So someone might accuse them of putting their favorites higher on the list, giving them licenses instead of others. This meant that the Liquor Control Board had a third thing to worry about. Beyond just the possibility of a bad procedure or subversion leading to unfair results, they now also had to deal with this potential conflict of interest. And as Sharif said... Lotteries are not exactly the core competency of a liquor control board, so they decided to reach out to some people who could help. One was an independent auditor. They would be the person to maintain the list of applicants. And then for the lottery side of the equation, they reached out to the Social and Economic Sciences Research Center at Washington State University. And they, they knew exactly where to go for some good lottery design. So they, they, they come to the math department and, and sit down with the, the chair, you know, talk with these things. And they're walking through the department and they happen to walk by one of the, the open doors, so a, you know, a professor, and he's in his office. And they, they all get to chatting together and uh, talking about what it is that they're trying to do. And the, this professor happens to be my advisor. And he, he says, hey, I know the perfect person to work on this. <laughs> and then I worked on it for the next couple of months. <laughs> so, so it's your typical uh, grad, grad student story that the professors talked about and decided the grad student should do it. 
more or less, but uh, I, I do have to point out that I did agree enthusiastically. Oh, yes. So oh, th no, th this, is, this is a wonderful project to have foisted upon you. <laughs> Joking aside, it's rather clear that Sharif was a strong choice to design this lottery. Just listen to his perspective on the job. Even if we come up with the most perfect system, if we can't explain it to people, then we have not done our job successfully. Well, let's see how successful he was. Let's take the case of Seattle, which had 191 applicants. So these applicants are all going to be assigned numbers, 1 through 191, in some order by the uh, independent auditor. They're not going to tell us which is which. Now, all that we at Washington State University know is the number of applicants, 191. So we have this list of numbers, 1 through 191. And the idea is, you can think of this as a deck of 191 cards, one with each of these numbers. All we have to do is shuffle the deck and then hand the shuffle deck back to the state and, and let them look at their list and see who's on top. Now, of course, he doesn't mean a literal 191-card deck. Beyond just having no idea where he would have managed to find a deck with so many cards, shuffling that deck would be onerous to say the least. Plus, there would be no guarantee that those shuffles would actually properly randomize the cards. So instead... Sharif had two people create lists of random numbers independently from two different sources, and then he combined those lists and used the results to shuffle the metaphorical 191-card deck by choosing cards at random. So we use these sources of randomness to do that selection, pick the next 100, you know, card out of the 191. And that this new deck that you're building, uh, one card at a time, will eventually have all of the cards from your original deck. But you've picked each one randomly. So, if you did this right, you now have a new shuffled deck. Nothing is ever simple, though. And Sharif had to employ a couple of really cool mathematical tricks to get to that final shuffle. Fair warning, we're about to be mixing dice rolling and card shuffling metaphors. So just keep in mind, the dice rolling is representing the random number generation that's being used to shuffle the deck of cards. Imagine that you want to generate a number from 1 to 5, but all you have is a six-sided die numbered 1 through 6. Now, it's pretty obvious what you should do. If you roll a 1 through 5, that's your answer. Now, what happens if you roll 6? Well, you could just say, oh, well, just can you continue the sequence? One, two, three, four, five, one. But now, one is twice as common as everything else. So you're going to be getting a lot of ones from this random number generator. And you'd really like it to be the exact same odds of everything. So the easiest thing to do is just say, that can never happen. Well, you can't change the laws of physics so you don't roll a six, but you can just re-roll it when you do. That's generally easier. So just keep doing that. This gives you a random number from 1 to 5. Now, apply it for those cards. If you have 191 cards, and let's say you have a suitably large die with, say, 200 sides, you roll that, and now you get a number from 1 to 191, you're good. If you get from 192 to 200, re-roll it. 
okay, so this works pretty well. And, you know, 190, 189, et cetera, you can keep repeating this process. Let's say you get down to five cards left. You're still rolling this 200-sided die because once you've started rolling, it's just easier to keep using the same thing. At this point, it doesn't really make sense to wait until you roll one through five because you're going to be re-rolling when you get six through 200, which is most of the time. So if you want this to complete quickly, you might want something else. You roll one through five, sure, you're going to say you get one through five as your result. What if you do the same thing for six through 10? So if you roll a six, you record one. You roll a seven, you record two. All the way up to 10. But you can do that again to 15, to 20. So now you're just repeating these numbers. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And this works. Actually, in this case, you can go all the way up to 200. So now, with this 200-sided die, you never have to re-roll it when you want this number one through five. Now with four numbers, you're perfect. You can do it again all the way, one to 200. You roll your die, you pick your card, you only have to do it once. Now we're down to three cards. And that's, okay, there's a little bit trickier. If we go one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, our last three will land on 198. Which means if we continue the sequence, we'll have a 1 on 199 and a 2 on 200. So if we use this to turn our 1 to 200 on the dice into 1 through 3 in our cards, we get too many 1s and 2s. So again, same thing we did with the the 6-sided die. We throw away those last two. The idea is roll the die, and if it's too big, re-roll it. Otherwise, we just repeat this pattern. Once again, these are just metaphors because there was no way that Sharif was going to be able to get people to roll his 200-sided die enough times to create the random numbers needed. Plus, where do you buy a 200-sided die? It's at the same place you get a 191-card deck? Where is this store? Okay, okay, calm down. So instead... Sharif's two random number laborers used computers to generate their lists, which changes the size of our die, but not our process. The luxury of computers is that instead of a 200-sided die, it actually is easier to use a 65,536-sided die. (laughs) You know, it's a good thing you didn't have to make it. Right. It would have been really hard to make that. Right, and we, we really would not like to wait around until it stopped rolling. And the reason that's more convenient is that it's 2 to the 16th power. And computers love to deal with multiples of 8 bits. And 2 bytes is 16 bits, and that's exactly how much you need to store a 16-bit integer which is from 1 to 65,536. So Sharif used the dice rolling method on the list of random numbers, and they got their ordering of applicants, and everything was perfect and rosy, and everyone lived happily ever after. It would be great if that was the end of the process. It turns out that 
before the lottery was run, the State Liquor Control Board had disqualified a lot of applicants. Now, this wasn't a problem for most cases. These were people that had not followed the requirements for applying for a license. Like one of the requirements was that you could not be within a thousand feet of a school or a park or other similar restrictions with your proposed location. Now, that's good, but you have to be careful when you're applying that. There was a news story about one applicant that was disqualified because they were within a thousand feet of an RV park, which was not the intent of that regulation. The problem is, at this point, the lottery has occurred, and they were disqualified. They're, they now appeal, and they win. But what do you do for them? How can you get this person back in this lottery? They weren't just going to throw away the results and redo the lottery. In fact, they couldn't. Some of the licenses had already been granted, and people had started the very real work of putting together their stores. And they couldn't just toss them into the ordering which already existed, especially if that meant that, say, number 21 in the Seattle lottery got bumped down and would no longer get the license that the original lottery indicated that they would receive. Really, what was needed was some way to run the lottery with the same odds as the original one but for just one applicant, and in a way that's still fair and blind. And that's exactly what they did. Sticking with Seattle, when this problem came up, they again generated a shuffling of the numbers 1 to 191, and they sent it back to the auditor, who had chosen a number to represent the single applicant. And since the auditor was the only one who knew which number represented the appeal applicant, fairness was guaranteed for this supplemental lottery. But there was only 21 licenses for Seattle. So what was the state going to do if this supplemental lottery awarded an extra license? This is where the state had to bend the rules a little bit. Um, so because they needed to figure out some way to resolve this issue, while they did institute a cap, the exact number of the cap was not guaranteed by law. So they did have some flexibility to increase that cap. And they chose to use that power in this instance to award a license if they ranked highly enough. And this appeal process, it was actually part of the initial design. In fact, the lottery was designed to deal with multiple simultaneous appeals, even though that was a problem that didn't end up even coming up. At the beginning of the process, we need to design a system that works no matter what. Because we don't know how many appeals there will be. We just know some people are appealing. We need to deal with this. We don't know how many times we need to deal with this. This all gets even more impressive when you find out the amount of time Sharif had to pull it all together. Well... This process, uh, it was on the order of uh, about a month or two from just being approached to actually running the first lotteries. So in that time, we had to do all of this analysis, design the system, and get it up and running. And be confident about it enough to say that, yes, if this goes to court, we are willing to defend this system. But more than anything else... 
This whole thing proves that no matter how cool, no matter how impressive what you're doing is, everyone still ends up looking out for number one. Um, how did your friends, family, all that uh, react when you told them uh, what you were doing or what, what job you got, you got to do? The, the, the reaction was pretty universal. It was, can you get me a license? <laughs> <laughs> to which I explained, no, no, I designed this process so I couldn't. <laughs> And that is it for the first episode of Relatively Prime's new season. I really hope that you enjoyed it. I want to thank Sharif Ibrahim for being my guest, and Jazar and Arbiter617 for the music. You can find them on the Free Music Archive and SoundCloud respectively. The clip of Fish was recorded in George, Washington by Frankie C1, and the audio of the draft lottery came from CBS. Relatively Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share-Alike license, meaning you can feel free to remix it however you want, with the exception of the Fish and Draft Lottery audio, of course, but for my voice, make me do or say really whatever you want. If you want to help Relatively Prime continue to exist, though, please think about becoming a patron on Patreon and pledging to give just a little bit every time there's a new episode, like James Clare, Stan Yamain, Bree Pren, and Christian Ja already have. Thank you so much for listening, and have a math week. Bye, y'all.